Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Bruce Whitaker. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, thank you, VJ. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning. And our featured guest is Christina M. Rao. Uh, serves, she serves as the 2020 Poet Residence for the Oceanside Library and was chosen as the Walden Birthplace 2020 Long Island's Poet of the Year. She authored the... Um, Elgin Award-winning sci-fi femme poetry collection Liberating the Astronauts and the chapbooks Wake, Breathe, Move and For the Girls. Um, she she conducts uh, co-conducts South Bay Sundays, a monthly poetry workshop and co-curates the creative gathering bards, buskers, and broadstrokes. When she's not writing, she teaches yoga or is watching the game show network. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about your writing and your writing practice. How's it about going in the pandemic and uh, and what are some of the themes and ideas that really get you going, really get you uh, fired up? Sure, sure. So I've been writing a lot lately. Um, I do. I have a practice that I write every morning anyway, and it's what I call my scrappy write just every morning for however long I want. I just write in a journal and I don't, you know, I don't look at it ever again, but it kind of gets the juices flowing. And uh, lately I've been writing, I did a lot of hiking this summer. So I've been doing a lot of nature writing, which is new for me. I've never really written about nature before in certain ways. So I'm doing some nature writing. Uh, and uh, contrary to what a lot of people are doing these days, I'm not writing about quarantine or pandemic. That's not coming up for me at all. And I think that's because I've been outside a lot this summer. And I also think that people need to get a break from that. So sometimes when I'm writing, I'm thinking about what would make people happy these days? What would give people a break? And so a lot of those themes are coming up as well. Uh, and also I, I used to do something called sit around and write monthly. And it was just carving out time to make myself write for at least an hour a month. And I find that after doing that for about a year, I got into a practice where I'm actually, I don't need to plan something to actually write. I do write a little bit more. And of course, my, my sci-fi, you mentioned the Liberating the Astronauts, the sci-fi collection. It's sci-fi feminism, which I didn't know was a thing until I found Aqueduct Press. And they're like, we would like to publish your collection. And I was like, okay. And that's what they published. And so I have been writing a little bit about outer space and Mars and I just had a, a poem published in Zingara Poetry Review about uh, about Mars. So, so the sci-fi stuff is still there. So it's an abundance of nature and outer space and and uh, and hope. Maybe a little bit of hope, a little bit of non-suffering coming in. That's cool. Could we hear your poem from Zingara Review that you were just mentioned, or something oh, else that you have had yeah, in mind? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, the Zingara one is, I don't remember writing it, which is weird. Uh, I just know that I, I wrote it at some point, right? And uh, it was about, you know, visiting Mars and um, not really, well, it's about a lot of stuff all at once. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. That's what I always tell my students, don't tell me what your poem's about, just read it. Uh, so this is called, How Do We Determine What Mars Is Made Of? Sampling and photographs over years until drying out. A flight in ages. When they go, they go for good. They say goodbye and know the silting red will be dug up for graves. They know the shallow dips and angled hills 
will be playgrounds, outbacks, landscape views for all. They know money doesn't matter after setting down. The rovers didn't need to disconnect in this way. They did, and then they did not. In millennia, it will be human bone in the loam. Thank you. Good. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a. I, I think that that the uh, that movie with Matt Damon was also in my mind. The one where he grows the potatoes. The oh, Martian. Yeah, yeah. The Martian. Yeah, the, yeah. Based on the book. Yeah, by by Weir. Yeah, The Martian. So. Yeah, apparently they also did a book about a heist on the moon or something. I don't know. So they <laughs> combine genres, matching up genres. So that's interesting to think about uh, sci-fi and different planets and kind of think about what, what that makes us feel and how that bring, what that brings us to. Yeah. Yeah. What is, I, uh, what is sci-fi feminism? What, how does that interact? How do those two pieces interact? You know, I, it's... <laughs> apparently stuff that I write which is interesting because I I wasn't writing to write in this genre and I didn't even know I was actually writing sci-fi and I didn't even know that that's what I liked until somebody pointed it out to me and then I went through all of my writing and it does have strong um, a strong female voice uh, usually talking about um, getting through relationships in life uh, being caretakers and there's so there's that and also like the influence of women in literature in my writing uh, so women that i see as characters as authors in my writing so that happens and it kind of intersects with this idea of astronauts and space exploration and uh building building other worlds and so that somehow combines <laughs> and and that's what sci-fi femme is it's strong female voices lending themselves to world building. And I think that's what feminism is anyway. It's, it's really building your world and building your place in a world and trying to share that with other people. I think it's a little, mm. I think it, the definition of feminism for everybody is a little bit different. And also the definition of sci-fi is a little bit different for everybody. There's so many subgenres that, uh, so many that I haven't even gone into or, or read yet. So uh, there, there's intertwining, I think, among the two themes. Well, it's interesting because the uh, sci-fi, so much of it is about building a new world or an alternative world in the, either the author's mind or literally in the course of the plot of the story. And uh, I think that's a big objective for feminism as well, uh, this alternative world. So it's uh, interesting to uh, contemplate a genre where they're completely interwoven in that way. And, uh, Absolutely, yeah. The that I that the world building I think is what sets sci-fi aside from let's say a magical realism, right? So magical realism, it's this real world, and then it has magical elements. Where sci-fi is, it can be all magic, it can be all horror, it can be steampunk, and there's always something about it that's building something new, and it doesn't have to be this extravagant other realm, like you know, um, in Lord of the Rings, there's another realm, and um, in all of these, uh, some of the, the superheroes, there's there's all these other realms and planets. And I don't think that sci-fi has to be that, but there's always some some sort of, alter if if this world were another way, like mm -hmm. world 2.0 or 7.7 .7 or something, which yeah. they do in the flash, I believe. There's all different worlds. Yeah, or there's a time jump that's so great that it's as if it were another world, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 
the time thing is the one that I can never follow. So if I'm ever following like a sci-fi book or movie where they time jump, I'm like, okay, now I'm lost. Uh -huh. <laughs> Maybe that's that's the thing that I have to conquer next: time travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where, where do you get your? Do you read a lot of scientific articles and, uh, or do you do a lot of word building in your work? Uh, how do you get your inspiration? Yeah, I. Well, right now, inspiration is just everything outside, and uh, I get. I think that my. I I love science. I I grew up in a science household. My dad was an accountant. My mom was a was a scientist. So uh, I get my ideas from science and uh, every morning I go through like the big top science stories. Usually it's about the, like a, a few days ago, there were like two black holes that were like eating each other and like they sucked each other up. And, and so I get, um, I get my inspiration from like the daily science news, like that happens really quickly. And then also um, I have a thing for the inventor Tesla. So I kind of check to see like what's happening in, in, the, in the realm of Tesla fans all over the world. Uh, <laughs> at, at on Long Island in Mordenclyffe, his lab is there. And so uh, every year, well, not this year, but every year for the past few years, I've been going to celebrate his birthday. And they have like these exhibits about like his inventions and, and uh, what his life was like. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to see how many people like think about this, this one inventor that a lot of people don't know about and they it's, it's a little bit of worship and a little bit of admiration. And so I guess I find like-minded people and I get my inspiration from them as well. I have a funny Mars story. Uh, uh, several years ago, I was at a wedding in Los Angeles and um, the groom worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And so a lot of the guests were involved with the rover. And so oh. we're sitting around and say, where do you work? Well, I work on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> They spent their whole day, you know, staring at the screen, working, maneuvering this robot around. <laughs> that's, that's absolutely amazing. I actually, I have a, I have a poem about the rover because um, it, it does the same thing every day, uh, but uh, one day a year they make it do something else, so it makes different sounds. It's a, oh, yeah. it's a really interesting. Uh, it's a, look up the rover a little bit more. Scientists have a funny have a funny sense of humor sometimes. It's scientific humor rather than a, your average everyday humor, I think. Yeah, I, think <laughs> I heard also something about them singing, making it sing happy birthday or something. That's what and, the poem's yeah, about, poem, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah, do you wanna read that one or? Um, I can actually, yeah. yeah. I actually know where that is. That's, uh, yeah. that's, in, that's in Liberating the Astronauts, it's in yeah. the book. Um, So it is it's called Curiosity. Okay. Though sound does not carry, it hums to itself. Each movement becomes a note on the line between the lines. Sheet music coded somewhere deep, deeply digging or a shallow swipe. The experiments happen automatically, it seems. Every day, a record of date, time, temperature. Every day, roving and digging. Every motion, a buzz, a frequency, noises and patterns, incantations to make the work go by, the day go by, until winding down when Earth's sun sets. Machines do not get tired. They work, alone, diligent, stoic and swift. On August 5th, Everything changes. Curiosity roves around and completes a series of movements it does not follow on any other day. It hums, 
passing the time to the tune of happy birthday. A party of one sampling the finest astrolome, the densest space matter below a surface. It does what it does as it does every day. The only difference is 225 million kilometers away where the women and men tug on pointed hats and eat cake and blow out candles and sing along celebrating another year of life. Thank you. Yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah. So, I mean, just, and it, that gets to me every time. It's like, it's throwing its own birthday party and they're yeah. making it their birthday party. And it, they're kind of like, they're so far away, but they're all celebrating the same thing on the same day, even though, I mean, it's not alive, but it, it's, it's like, it's like Johnny five. Remember Johnny five, like short yeah. circuit, like it's alive in some way. <laughs> yeah. Very great. You know, it's yeah. it's funny we personify these machines because I forget the name of it, but the satellite that was finally sent out beyond the solar system. Um, and I, and we'll probably, you know, we'll never have contact with humans again. You just suddenly feel this sort of poignancy about that or, or this kind of, oh my God, that's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> this bunch of metal, you know, is flying out there and it's, it's probably going back to possibly the source of the metal in the first place, you know? Uh, so it may be going home in a way, but um, that's personification in, in, in ages of AI is so, uh, is so tricky, you know, for going from the, you know, what was the movie Siri to growing um, issues of machines as companionship or uh, how emotionally we get involved with our machines and things like that. And, um, do you have, do, do you have, as you look at science and these sorts of things, do you come across these kind of crossovers of human and machine that are either inspiring or alarming or both? Oh, yeah. I alarm myself every day when like I talk to my Amazon Echo and I say, thank you. And it's just, I'm like, why am I thanking a machine that I just talked to? I, you know, it's like, can I have the weather please? And then I thank it. And it's like, it's not going to talk back to me. Why am I thanking a machine? Yeah. Uh, so, well, there's something said to be said about politeness, but I think like uh, last semester we read uh, that Ray Bradbury story, there will some come soft rains where the house that has been built to be automatic is still standing after this like nuclear apocalypse has like all the people are gone there's one dog left that's like on its last leg and the house keeps going and going. And so we were talking about, you know, the story was written like so long ago, but like what resonates with you? And it's the fact like everything in the house is automated and we can do that. We have all of these smart machines. We have the lights, we have the doors, we have the locks, we have the doorbell. Uh, we don't have one of those. Well, maybe some people. Well, yeah, even the coffee maker. I was going to say we don't have things to make us breakfast, but we do. The coffee maker. You just set the timer. And uh, the really funny thing that happened is I was telling them about they hadn't heard of those smoke detectors that yell at you. And there are smoke detectors now. And they don't just beep. They say, fire, fire, get out, get out. <laughs> and uh, I had been telling them about that. I had been screaming, fire, fire, get out, get out. And like not two seconds later, our fire alarm went off in the building. Yeah. Everybody had to evacuate. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was actually like there was like some something had set it off. But like I was like, isn't that like it was kind of scary that like we were just talking about fire and getting out and the fire alarm like sets off. And then, you know, and then a few months later, we were like kicked off of campus. <laughs> so it's a scary thing where like, you know, in in science and in science fiction, we see these things that we think are going to happen years and years, you know, 
from now, light years from now. And now is the light years from when we thought they were and they are happening. And then we look at the, you know, at the things that are happening like in more, more recent science and science fiction and say, oh, wow, things are, things are, you know, things are realer than we think. And it's not just fiction, it's, it's actually real. And the crossover is interesting. I think that technology does help, but yeah, there's a fine line between help and dependence and, and uh, too much dependence on it, I think. Yeah, yeah. apparently there was a article, this is from a few years back, but I was just looking, I saw it on Facebook recently that uh, Facebook shut down an AI experiment after two robots began speaking their own language. So it's like once they start speaking amongst themselves, it's like it gets a little worrisome, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they, then we're not privy to what they're talking about. Yeah. One of the things that I find, you know, speaking of Ray Bradbury, who I think doesn't get enough credit for <laughs> the world that he's created, uh, as you say, that we almost feel caught up with the science fiction of that sort of mid 20th century vision of the future. And I don't see anybody writing what the next century will look like, except always in a very dystopian way. You know, like, like we're at that point where the next war will be, this war may be fought with nuclear weapons, but the next one with sticks and stones. We're heading toward what I see futuristically looking is that we're, we're going to be back to sticks and stones, but is there any science fiction that's, looking at the other side of technology where we're headed since we've done nearly everything the the writers told us we could do in our youth <laughs> um i think you have like you have a very good point there i think that a lot of a lot of that genre is kind of very dystopian i think that's that's what resonates with people i guess it just doesn't have a lot of hope which which uh doesn't sound great but i do think that uh while the the prose kind of um, usually winds up in a place where there's a, a lot of dystopia and a lot of a lot of sadness and a lot of loss and not very many um, very many signs of hope. I think that the speculative poetry has a little bit more hope to it sometimes. Uh, a lot of it a lot of it runs along the line of horror, so that happens. But I do think that a lot of the um, a lot of the poetry does have less of a a nihilistic, less of an apocalyptic uh, bent. And it, some of it does have a more, um, sometimes I would say positive and I would, or I would just say kind of interesting and out there and it's neither positive or negative and it's just plain weird, which is always yeah. a good place to be, I think, when you're trying to escape <laughs> anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're talking to Christina Rao about writing and science fiction, and we'll get onto some other things soon. Um, one of the things that I think might be contributing to this is um, most of this mid-century science fiction was very materialistic and very focused on how we do things, make things, how they serve us. But I think we've reached a kind of limit to that, and the next frontier really may be more spiritual or psychic. And uh, again, I, I don't know if there's much psychic or spiritual futurism out there, but I, I do think a lot of people feel um, our challenges are, are of the next century really are emotional and cooperative and social, cultural, rather than, you know, how do we fuel, how do we do this? How do we make this happen? Um, d does that resonate at all for you or? The idea that it's, yeah, that it's uh, more cultural, 
more people based that, that idea. I think that that's, I mean, even with, with comic books, I'm not, I'm not huge into comic books. I'm not huge into su superheroes and the Marvel universe I know through film, but even there, I think that that's always had that moral compass where we're seeing the, the Peter Parker um, with, with great power comes great responsibility. Just the mm -hmm. simple lines of, we are all human. We should be fighting for good. We should be fighting against evil. I think that that kind of underlies a lot of that idea that it's, it's a cultural thing. And instead of trying to see boundaries and how to keep each other out, we can see, okay, we have differences and then how we can learn from each other and cross over. And that, again, that might sound a little bit Pollyanna, but I, I do think that that's true. And I see that mostly, I see that in superheroes because, and I think it's because those are mostly like good versus evil. And mm. um, in other kinds of science fiction, I don't, I haven't really read much contemporary uh fantasy or science fiction other than Harry Potter, right, lately. Yeah. So uh, I'm not really sure where that is going, but I do see it in, in comic books. It's, it's now and it's, it's always been that, that underlying idea of hope and responsibility and, you know, acceptance of people who are different, acceptance of people who are not like us. And so I, I think that that's been a trope for a really long time. And if it's happening today, in in novels then that's great <laughs> i hope mm -hmm. it does i hope it happens more i i in poetry in the in the speculative poetry i do see some world building and uh some you know some ideas of acceptance and that comes through in like accepting you know accepting aliens uh sticking up for even in the horror i read a uh, i read a collection and i can't remember the name but it was it was based on sticking up for all of the women in horror movies. And it went through all these different characters in horror movies where all of these women, of course, like they were chased and they were murdered and, and, you know, and they wind up dead at the end and it was sticking up for each one. Uh, so even that that's, it's, it's the idea of like that humanity underneath it. And hmm. I'll remember the name of that and send it to you eventually. <laughs> yeah, so I also wanted to ask, uh, bringing it more grounded into your own process and experience, uh, what are some uh, philosophical movements or works that really change your worldview? This is one of the pre-interview questions. Uh, we were talking a little bit about like what the, what works or what philosophies really influenced you and change your worldview. Yeah. You know? So uh, way back when, in like the nineties, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I grew up like Catholic, and I never felt like I was Catholic. And I was like, well, you know, God's great and Jesus is great, but you know, there's got to be more. There's got to be something different. And then. I think it's came from like the funniest place, like that Kevin Smith movie Dogma, where like George Carlin was in it and Alanis Marston was in it. Yeah. And suddenly I was like, oh, look, you're allowed to question faith. And I mean, that's what the movie was about, but it was like a spoof movie and it wasn't, I don't know who it was supposed to be. Like I just took it to heart and I was like, wow. And at the same time, the movie Stigmata came out where it was like questioning who Jesus was and what, and I was like, oh, my mind is totally blown. And then like, Fast forward to like, I wasn't like, I don't, I don't, I didn't know what I believed in at all for a while. And just fast forward to like the past few years where I really, I, I took up yoga like decades ago and I've been doing yoga and never really got into the full philosophical side, but did it a little bit more and a little bit more. And then, you know, I, I read about like the history of 
of uh, Buddhism. And uh, I just recently read, this was like a mind blowing thing, Tea and Cake with Demons, which was a book by oh, yeah. uh, Andre, Adriana. Limbach. Her last yeah, name starts with an L. Limbach, I think. Yeah, we yes, had her on the show, you, yes. actually. Oh, fantastic, yeah. 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 That, that book is, it's, it's fabulous and it's amazing. And also, um, by Radnahath Swami, there was a book um, about his life's journey. And just thinking about the, the tenets of Buddhism, Buddhism and uh, even just reading like the sutras, that brings so much life and so much calm. And it, it kind of just changed my mind to be like, oh, you know, you can follow whatever. The, the thing that I really like about um, being being Buddhist is that you can be Catholic and a Buddhist. You can be Jewish and a Buddhist. You could be another religion and also have this because I, I think it just kind of encompasses everything. The idea that we all suffer in some way, whether it be in huge, huge ways, like unfortunately some people don't have places to live and they can't find a job, right? And then we all have this other kind of suffering where you know, your heart gets broken. And we've, most people have witnessed the suffering of something dying, a plant, a pet, a relative, you know, and we all have that in some way. And the way that we deal with it, you know, if you are following a certain religion, somebody has to get buried, or you have to have a wake, or you have to sit shiva, or you have to do all of these things. But within all of that, you can also say, okay, in, in Buddhism, this is what I can do also. Uh, we all suffer. I know the the cause of my suffering. I, I can try to go about it in this way. I can try to have compassion for myself and then also have compassion for other people. Uh, and that is actually coming up in my work a lot lately as well. Um, it's been like a turning point for the past few years in my life where I was like, oh, okay, I can kind of let go of my anger. And oh, yeah, I can let go of it because now I actually know that I have it. And once you know you have it, you can start to let it go. And, and it's really life-changing. I think it's really, really life-changing. It's yeah. interesting because uh, there's a translation group uh, called 84,000, which has been releasing sutras uh, over the past few, several years. Their goal is to translate all the existing sutras. And many, many of them, uh, the beginning of every sutra describes the situation of the teaching where it began. You know, the Buddha was here, the Buddha was in a park or whatever. And very often uh, these sutras talk about the arrival of beings from other worlds to listen to the teachings. And uh, that's uh, to just connect that to what we were talking about earlier, that one of the, the, the cosmology of Buddhism accepts uh, from the get-go that there is some form of life in other worlds and uh, it, throughout a parallel, possibly parallel or some other kind of universe. So um, I, I think that uh, in this world of, you know, the, the discoveries of science keep aligning uh, with Buddhism in, in so many different ways. And uh, so that's another aspect of it. That, yeah, I think, so yeah, it's, it's the... What I really love is we learn through the storytelling. And I think that that's across a lot of like belief systems that we have parables, we have allegories, and we learn through the storytelling. And a lot of the storytelling is it's beautiful storytelling. And it kind of, it, it doesn't seem preachy. It just seems this is what happened. And uh, in the in the tea and cake with demons, it's, you know, he invites in Mara, which is like the be all end all demon and is like, 
don't run away from him. I'm not going to run away. Open the door, let him in for tea. Let's sit down and let's chat. So it, the, the ideas of those stories, I think, really pull us in and they don't seem preachy. And I think that happens a lot. The, the idea of like we have characters and then we learn from we learn from the stories rather than being talked at or preached at. That's why in a lot of the in a lot of the translation of the sutras, the sutras themselves, the the actual language of them, like the tenets, like it's basic language, and you're like, oh, I get that. And then sometimes I read like the translate, like the the explanation beneath, and whoever the translator is decided to like use beautiful language, and I'm like, oh, now I get it even more. Uh, so there was one that recently came up, I forgot what sutra it was, but it was about being being happy with where you are when things come and go. And it was like, when something comes into your life, then you can be filled with joy. And then when it leaves, be filled with joy at its departure. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, I get it now. Like it, it, helped, it helped reframe what the sutra was, like not just the, the literal translation, but the, the paragraph beneath it that, that made it really shine for me. And then I wrote that down and it's like on my front door. <laughs> yeah. that's how that's how we keep it in our lives <laughs> also in regards to the demons thing it's like uh sometimes uh emotions or feelings can come initially can feel like they're negative and then when you sit down with them and help them and the dialogue with these emotions and dialogue with these uh difficult spaces they can sometimes be hiding vulnerability so it seems like uh, the vulnerability is something that we don't want to necessarily confront. So they end up transforming or transmuting into like some negative energy in the room that um, we don't recognize at first as vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Vulnerability, it's, it's a scary place to be. Yeah. And I think that's why people see it as negative because you're, you're scared. And, and that's yeah. because like we have ideas that, you know, if I'm vulnerable, somebody's going to take advantage and, and that happens, but also if you're vulnerable, you can open yourself up to things that you didn't know about yourself or to like adventure. And, and yeah, it's, it's kind of good every now and then to be scared and uncomfortable and, and like out of your element. And you see kind of like where you can push your limits and where your limits are, and then you can create like boundaries that work for you. And, but it's, it is difficult. I think that it's, it's fear is what keeps us you know, fear is like the big one, right? And that's kind of attached to every every other thing that's kind of negative is it's fear. Yeah. Maybe this so. would be a good time to uh, bring up your work as a coach, particularly at this uh, moment in history and so forth. But what has it been like over the last few months with clients and what sort of issues are people coping with out in this world? Um, <laughs> trying to hold it together. <laughs> that's a big one. Um, a lot of there's there's just so much pressure and when uh, when the virus hit and it was in March right so long ago I I had to go into like troubleshooting mode and like because I I also teach at Nassau Community College and so we had to get through the rest of the semester and we we went into this remote teaching on online and it was just it was like a travesty and then you know and there was so much to do and I hadn't been back to campus and then it took until June for me to realize what was going on. And that's when I had like a breakdown. And so I think that that's, and once I had my breakdown, I was like, now I can feel better. And I think that the idea that people are having so much anxiety about holding it together and not showing that, you know, things aren't okay. Um, dealing with that. And I, I just heard on, I think it was on an NPR that the, 
dentists are seeing record numbers of people coming in with like cracked teeth because mm -hmm. people are like clenching their jaws and grinding their teeth because there's all this pressure inside. And so I see that with yoga clients, with Reiki clients, and just with people that are just talking, like it's, it's a lot of this pressure and worry about being stressed. It's the stress about the stress that's like really getting to people. And so, uh, and, and I've said this to a lot of people, I don't call this the new normal. I call this the abnormal because nothing about this is normal. And allowing people to feel that this is not okay. And we can sit in it not being okay. And at the same time, we can do what we need to do to survive. And so we can cry and we can also laugh and we can do all of the things that we need to do to get through the day. So if getting through the day means you, you get up and you can't believe that you have to put your mask on again, then look at your mask, throw it across the room, yell at it for a while, then go pick it up, put it on and leave the house and you're going to be fine. You know, so there's dealing with the anxiety of being anxious, dealing with the anxiety of being angry and not wanting to show those feelings and keeping them inside. That's what's really making people not feel okay. And getting them to express that a little bit, uh, whether it's through meditation and yoga and also Reiki, like all of that can take the pressure off just a little bit for just a little, little moment. And those little moments build up. And eventually things might feel a little better, even if the world is still not better. Mm -hmm. are, are, does the pressure come a lot from the sense of isolation or uh, material anxiety or uh, what, what sorts of pressures are, are people going through that we might not well, imagine? I, I just, we all can imagine, but are there specific <laughs> things that are really grinding people down? Yeah, right now, most people I talk to are our, our parents and are so right now it's the school year starting mm -hmm. and there are parents who also teach. So it's like a double whammy of, I have to figure out what to do in my classroom to keep that safe. And my district doesn't even know what we're doing yet. And also I have children who are going to this other school. So I have to make sure it's safe for them and, you know, juggling that schedule and, so it's a, it's a time thing, right? So everybody's like worried about time. How am I going to work and also have them be home and then also go to school and who and who's in the A cohort and who's in the B? So there's a scheduling. And then there's the idea of I I still have to work. I have to work because if I don't work, then I'm, you know, I'm not going to make money for my family. And then underneath that, which is a really weird thing, underneath that is the idea that oh, we're in a pandemic. And like that got pushed to the bottom because we're trying to troubleshoot and we're trying to figure things out. And then now pandemic is third. And the pandemic is really the reason all of these other things are happening. <laughs> and so it's it's an interesting shift there. And so the the fears of I can die from this this virus, the fears of that have kind of pushed down because now there's a fear of how am I going to live my life and get everything done that I have to do. Mm. And that's I think that's a normal thing because now, oh, we're used to it. And it's really odd because I watch, sometimes I'm watching some TV and I'm like, oh, they're getting too close to each other. And it's a show and pandemic. And I'm like, and my brain has just been rewired to think, oh, everybody should be wearing a mask right now. And it's, it's an interesting thing that now we're being rewired that, okay, the mask thing is a thing. We're going to get through that. But right now I have to deal with the schedule and going to work and who's allowed to work and who's allowed to go in the building. So I think it's, a, it's um, yes, isolation, definitely that's happening. But right now, I think it's more of 
time management and how to figure things out in a schedule for people who have one child to like five children to, you know, people who have spouses or single parents, like there's a whole other thing. Like we've, we've worked into a system that works for us and now we have to throw everything away because everything is new and we have to rework that. And I think right now that's where all the anxiety is coming from. How is it going to work? Mm. And, uh, and I see that in my students too. And I tell them, look, you know, you do have deadlines, you know, I can't just say, don't do anything and you're going to get an A, but we're going to see what works. And if something doesn't work, we're going to work it out, you know, and we have to be able to kind of shift up and get out of our routines. And that's a really scary thing, but we, it's something that everybody's dealing with. And I think that's where the main pressure is coming from. It's the change. There's a lot being written now that the impact of the pandemic on, on students in education, that they're, they're totally waste. This time is just totally gone. Do you find that? Do parents say their kids are are really not into learning right now or having real struggles learning right now or did it? Um, well, I think because this school year just started and last school year was just such a scramble. I think that uh, we don't know yet and mm. it will have to be seen. And I, even though they might not be learning what they're supposed to be learning in school, they are getting lessons. This is all like, you know, <laughs> these huge life lessons about, responsibility, about health, uh, the lessons that maybe people didn't want to talk about right now, the lessons of life and death. So they, they are learning. I mean, everybody's learning something. We're learning about ourselves. But in the core of it, the idea of, and I don't, I don't necessarily think testing is a way to go, and that's a whole other thing. But I think that we might be seeing how, you know, curriculum might be changed. And instead of focusing on the idea of testing, maybe focus on the idea of going out in the world and going and seeing things and doing things civically and um, learning in a different way, learning through applied learning and not learning to take a test that is a standardized test that really doesn't mean anything in the realm of things when there's a pandemic going on and you don't know if you can go to school. So I think that it's a different kind of learning going on. And the teachers, I, I'm a teacher, so you know, my brother's a teacher, my mom worked in school, so you know, I, I'm a little bit prejudiced, but I do know that all of the teachers that I know are doing above and beyond what they have been asked to do to be ready. And there's a lot that you just can't be ready for. And so we gotta learn to like roll with it and we're doing the best we can. And we'll I think like in a in a month's time, we'll see, you know. Is anybody ever actually learning or are we like chasing, you know, second graders around a classroom to make them not be near each other? Mm. And then we revisit it and we see what happens. And that's, again, the thing that's hard to do. It's hard to change something up when you're starting to get into the groove of something. Now we got to change it again. And that's the scary part. So, uh, but I think that we will, we will, we might see a revamp in education. We might see a revamp in, in how we do things and to the extent and the time that we do them. Uh, it's going to, hopefully everything will change for the better. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. As yeah. I remind people, this is the Truth to Power Show on Ready for Brooklyn. Ready for Brooklyn is uh, 501 or 401. 501C3. 501C3 New Nonprofit Organization. <laughs> we rely primarily uh, from donations listeners like you. Um, so if you'd like to donate to help us stay in the air, Please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, you can also go to our um, 
show page ready for brooklyn.org slash truth to power uh look at our back episodes um and finally um a couple other quick announcements um just if uh, in regards to that um so you can also text use your phone text rp give five that's number five to four four three two one it only takes a moment and you'll be able to use a digital wall for your donation and also when you shop on amazon you go to amazon.com smile and register ready for brooklyn as your nonprofit you wish to support when you do a percentage of sales will um go to rfb and it'll cost you nothing um that's about it and then if you want to keep in touch with uh our our newsletter go to richbrooklyn.org newsletter and uh definitely keep in touch so we're here with christina amrao um and bruce whitaker we're talking a little bit about covid and education and all these good stuff so uh and and her poetry uh christina's poetry influenced by many uh sci-fi femme sci-fi so why don't we why don't we pick up on the thread about uh yourself and and you know what you were saying about you what you're working on now and and where you're going from here writing wise sure yeah so right now i'm actually um i've the writing process i've been writing about nature the submission process i've been submitting i i finally got a collection another collection together so i've been shopping that around uh it's called um what is it called? It's called what we do to make us whole. Uh, because uh, I've been through the one of the reasons that I've been coaching and, and I went into Reiki and I've been I mean, I've been meditating and doing yoga for a really long time. But one of the reasons I kind of found all of this is because I started going to therapy and taking a look at myself, uh, because I uh, went through some stuff over the past few years. Um, so my grandmother had passed and then my dad had been sick a long time. And then he passed about six months later. And then three weeks later, my husband suddenly left. So it was like, bam, bam, bam. And there I was. And I was like, uh, I have to do something aside from cry all the time. And this is not working out for me. And so I actually put myself in therapy and I was like, oh, I probably should have gone to therapy much sooner. So um, first of all, shout out to therapy. Everybody should just try it once. Life changing. And then, so from there, a lot of um, stuff came out in my writing that was about, you know, who, how do I make a life work and um, how do you move on, like when you have grief. And so a lot of my poetry is talking about getting through something and we don't get over grief. We, we go through it and then we live with it and it becomes part of you and it becomes a part of you that can be very motivational and very inspiring and so that's what the the new collection is really about being um, finding peace within, you know, this very huge struggle and finding peace within all of the challenges that we have. And knowing that if I wake up crying every single day, that's OK. And eventually one day I don't wake up crying. And the idea of how humans are resilient doesn't get talked about enough and just human beings are resilient and people have reasons in this world right now especially to be angry and to want change and to feel beaten down like people like everybody feels that way sometimes and certain people feel that way more times than others uh and then within that there's anger 
but within that there's also grief and we we have grief in small ways we have grief in major ways and then once we recognize that's what it is we can start to work through it and that's what a lot of the poems are about uh, in in the collection and i think that's also why i've been getting in touch with nature i had had a little bit of a heartbreak over the, over the summer as well so uh going out and just walking and walking and walking and breathing in the air and looking up and seeing oh my gosh there's so much out there uh and then taking that in and um that's really what i've been working on like um i also have another collection that i'm writing right now it's a uh, creative nonfiction, personal essays and poetry and that's going to be called always look up and that's i'm diving into the realm of prose and we're going to see how that goes so talk about fear i have i have this great fear i'm i'm uh, I, I blog a lot. I do blog a lot, but changing the idea from blog post into essay form is a, it's a little, it's freaking me out a little bit, but, uh, but I'm working on it. And so, and so those are the two things. So what we do to make us whole is uh, full poetry. And then always look up, it's going to be poetry and creative nonfiction and essays. And uh, just tying in all of the things that I went through is like, oh, there's gotta be a reason. And yeah, the reason uh -huh. is my writing has been fueled and I am working on so much more right now. It's interesting. There's such an interest in uh, mixed genre material right now. Um, Claudine Rankin has just published a book, Just Us, which is about, it's really starting her study of whiteness. And it's a whole, it's a compilation of essays and letters and poems, uh, exploring blondness, uh, exploring all kinds of uh, archetypes in, in the white world. Um, but she's, it's a, pastiche in a way of all kinds of pieces of writing that she's thrown into this book. And a lot of people I know I'm working on mixed, I call them mixed media projects, uh, combinations of stories and poems or whatever. And uh, so it's an interesting time that I think a lot of people are, are open to experiences in reading that are not your linear novel or your sort of um, I don't know what, I don't want to say hodgepodge, but your short-term reading experience of poetry usually where you only read one or two at a time. They're, they're looking at different pacing uh, and looking for that kind of variety of voices in reading right now, I think. So. Yeah, I think it, it kind of mimics what, what we do it when we read like a literary journal. So literary journals have, you know, cross genre in them for the most part. So we could do that on our own with our own voices and with our own, uh, yeah. with our own work and our own creation, I think. Uh, and it's also, also internet surfing. You're crossing genres all the time when, when you go down those uh, infamous wormholes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not sorted by, you know, fiction or anything. It's not sorted at all. So off you go, you know. Yeah, I've been, I've been clicking through a lot of different things. And it's like, you click one thing and you're reading it. And you're like, oh, that's great. And then it's linked to something else. And like, you know, an hour later, you're like, how did I get here? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and that, that, you know, and that means that there's just a lot of good stuff out there, which is great. You know, there's, there's, if, if you keep clicking and you want to see where that came from and you want to see what's linked up there, I think it's, it's, it's great to do that because that means that there is a lot of good writing out there and it's writing that is meaningful. And, uh, and we need that. We do yeah. need that. And the, and the gatekeeping function has eroded enough that it actually, that good writing is actually getting read. Uh, 
the, the good side of, you know, no longer having five major journals and three television networks and six publishing houses governing everything. So Yeah, I think that there it's it is a lot to wade through though. There's like thousands of journals and like which one do I want to read today and where do I submit my work? And so and and so I stopped reading like the same one over and over again and just like every day or every few days I try to find something new and I'm like, oh well that sounds great. I I curate the Gazette for the the women's poetry listserv. And so whenever somebody sends something to me where, you know, they've been published, it's always a journal that I've never heard of. And I'm like, oh, that's a new one. And so I try to try to look up as many as I can to just, you know, see what's out there and see, see if it's something that I want to continue to read or something that's out there where I could recommend it to somebody. Uh, the, the one that I really enjoy lately, it's, there's a journal called Filling Station and they're out of Canada. And they, they do a lot of um, experimental writing and it's also cross genre and and that's a that's a review that I really enjoy reading um, as well as booth booth is really great booth is available online filling station I think only has a few things online otherwise they're hard copy hmm. thank yeah. you so what other stuff are you reading uh, anything else you're reading you want to highlight uh, either now or uh, during the pandemic or before um, what am I reading? Uh, I'm actually reading, I'm reading like five things right now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I started like first page started. So I consider it started. I started spill by Alexis Pauline gums, which is part of a trilogy. And I read the second one first. Cause I didn't know it was part of a trilogy. Somebody had recommended it to me and that was called M archive. Uh, it's got like a subtitle to it and um, uh, after the end of the world, M archive after the end of the world. And it's, it's prose verse poems that take from original matter. Uh, and she's a, a, a black activist, feminist, and she's theorist. And there's a, there's a lot of different things going on. And I was amazed by this book and it's about, it's in the voice of a researcher after the end of the world has happened, going through and seeing, like looking at the world as a historical document and what's in the archives. And uh, it was it was just a phenomenal read. So that was M Archives. So now I'm reading the first in the trilogy called Spill. And I opened up to the first page and I was like, I don't know if I could read this right now. The semester's just starting. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's one of those things I want to read and just like take my time with it. So I have that and, um, and then I have, you know, I have a few poetry books here and there, and uh, and then I'm I'm trying to keep up with my I'm right I'm teaching an autobiographical literature literature course, and so I'm trying to keep up with that as well. We're doing some some Amy Tan and uh, Cheryl Strayed next, so keeping up with that. There's a lot of reading going on. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. and um, yeah, so. We were also talking a little bit about, uh, in our pre-interview questions about, um, we talked a little bit about civic truths and, you know, being the thematic of the show, being truth to power. We talked a little bit about, uh, you know, these specific truths that help us empower ourselves in our community. So what, what kind of resonates with you in regards to, you know, the phraseology, truth to power, or, or the personal is political, and how does that kind of resonate with you? Yeah, that's a, that's a big one, right? Uh, yeah. 
like it's, it's like kind of asking like what's the point of what's the purpose in the world of living and yeah i think that yeah what the idea of truth this is funny because we were just doing this in, we were trying to define the word truth and the idea of what because you have your personal truth and then you also have the truth of what is actually happening we have like this reality and reality is not it's not something that we can all see as the same thing because we have our own pasts, right? So the idea that we can be true to ourselves and, and, and who we think we are and who, what we, you know, our best intentions, and then also recognize the truth of the matter is everybody's trying to do that. Everybody in this world is trying to be true to themselves. Whether or not that's actually happening, if we just say that that's what it is, right? Because then we can believe that we all want the same thing. And what we all want really is happiness. And that's exhausting, but it's also exhilarating. And so I guess the idea of truth to power is standing, um, standing up for yourself, trying to work on yourself and know who you are and know how you're changing. And that can be through writing. It could be through creating. It could be through being really good at your job. It could be through being a good mom or dad. Uh, it could be through, you know, taking care of your pets really well and really loving them. Uh, so whatever it is that you're really good at, you could let that shine noticing where you might not be good at something and you could be okay with that. Like, I don't know how to swim and I'm fine with that. I just don't go in the water. I'm good. So knowing that and then recognizing everybody has these strengths, these weaknesses, and we can always kind of help each other where, you know, I'm a little bit weaker in this and somebody can help me with that and accepting that help. So recognizing that everybody just wants to be happy, you know, and if we maintain that idea and it kind of settles the mind and it relaxes the body, just the idea that everybody wants happiness. And when we settle the mind and relax the body, we can actually do good for ourselves and for each other in really small ways by just, well, eh. I was gonna say by smiling at each other, but with the mask on, you really can't smile at each other, but uh -huh. you could wave, you could yeah. smile with your eyes as Tyra Banks would tell you to smile. So you, there, are, there are things with body language that you can do to just be kind and that can make somebody's day. That can make the difference between somebody being really walking around with their shoulders up really tight and looking at somebody waving at them. When you wave, you automatically drop your shoulders and you wave. And you might be startled that somebody's waving at you, but you do it. And then you think about that for a minute and you just took their mind off of whatever was keeping their shoulders up. And it's these small kindnesses that really give us power. And I think that's the truth of the world. Just the idea that everybody's suffering, everybody wants to be happy and little bits at a time, we can kind of make that happen. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think definitely we can create like a propulsion, uh, uh, momentum behind it. So it then becomes more and more, you know, that people are doing it and more and more empowering for society to do that as opposed to like this uh, cynicism that seems to be, you know, so prevalent. Uh, you know, we want to be able to empower kindness, empower uh, um, kind of a person to person kindness, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. And then even even in our personal choices, it's like how the personal is political and how we can choose boldly to be accepting and be uh, gracious and be uh, loving so that then 
when we and upon that foundation, we can then realize that, you know, um, exclusionary politics are not going to fly, you know, are not going to be acceptable uh, upon that basis, upon that foundation, you know? So Absolutely. That, yeah. 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 I mean, and I think we, I have faith in science. <laughs> so, and I, if, if I have to have faith in something, I have to have faith in science that that's going to make things a little bit better. And then maybe that faith can transfer over into faith of the people. And I think that people do want good things to happen. And so, yeah, to, to get rid of the divisions that are happening and to stop politicizing things. Like every, every, some, some people think everything's political, but I really don't think that everything has to be. You know, yeah. And stop politicizing things that are public health. And really think about, you know, if you're going into politics, you're going into politics to help people and not to show that you're powerful and not to be petty and not to fight with people. And if we need to change things, we need drastic change and radical change and people protesting in peaceful ways, I think is a way to do it. People writing their hearts out and even letter writing, it's a way to do it. And little things, big things, that creates change and it does take time, but it does create change. Thank you. Well, that's very hopeful. I hope that's true. And I hope we're uh, in a period like that. I find that there are, for many activists, this is a hopeful time because action does seem possible. Uh, nothing's guaranteed. There are no clear paths to any solutions to the problems we face, but um, we may be closer to at least acknowledging them and starting to work on them than we have for a long, long time. Um, Thank you. Thank there's some, some really interesting thinking going on and rethinking and uh, only the only progress will only come from that. Uh, but I think part of the challenge is, and uh, we're really running out of time for a topic yeah. like this to come up, yeah. is, <laughs> is how the private translates into group behavior and how yeah. Um, how these uh, how these actions can play out across Hispanic groups, especially groups that see themselves as competing. And that I think is our, our cultural challenge right now. We have a lot of awareness. We have a lot of elevated thinking in our in the in the American culture. Um, for decades, we led the world in that, but it's been very hard for us as a country to translate that thinking into actual programs and policies. Uh, then everybody should just call me up and meditate. Yeah. 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 Christina, why don't you quickly give a shout out to where we can follow you or where we can find more information? Uh, yeah, the best. I mean, I'm on I'm on Twitter and Instagram at, at Christina M. Rao. And uh, I have my website is ChristinaMRao.com. So everything, yeah. everything is there. So my wellness yeah. stuff, my poetry stuff, everything's there. So you can find me on the web and then do what you wish. Great. And Rao is R-A-W. R-A-U. R-A-U, sorry, R-A-U. R-A-U, yeah. All right, great. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Much gratitude to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. People can check out RadioBrooklyn.org slash Truth to Power to see our back issue of episodes. Thank you.